So if you're new, uh, you may not know, we've started this study, 1 Thessalonians, this spring, and we're, we're looking at these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote somewhere around 50 AD to a group of believers who were living in the historic city of Thessalonica. We have produced a little study brief that you can download online. It gives you a lot of background information about that movement, the church, the city, those kinds of things. The one thing that I want to point out today from that background information was just the short duration of the Apostle Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. He went with the intent, I'm sure, of staying for several months, perhaps even as long as a year. But as Paul got to their city and began to preach and teach, there was a group of people that that kind of began to protest against his teaching, and they created quite a stir, so much so that the city passed an ordinance that prevented the Apostle Paul from doing any kind of public ministry there anymore. And so there was such animosity toward him and the gospel message that actually the believers had to, had to usher him out of the city at night, which was something that kind of humiliated him. He, he didn't like leaving the city that way. But it was necessary because if he were to go out in broad daylight, there would be some other people who might identify him, create another disturbance for which that early church and those young believers would have been on the hook for that. They would have had to pay for any damages caused by the protest, and they would have been held accountable for that that outburst. So they, they sent Paul away, and he reluctantly did leave the community much earlier than what he had intended. While he was away from them, he began to, you know, wonder, like, how are they doing? I wonder if they're making it. So he sent a protege to go check on them. And when he came back, he reported to Paul, hey, they're doing pretty good. They're hanging in there. They're actually on their own. We read this last week. They're turning from idols. Um, They are sharing the word of Christ, not only in their city, but in other parts of Macedonia. More and more people are believing in Jesus. And so they were making quite a splash. But Paul wanted them not just simply to have a, a flash in the pan moment of just one quick splash. He wanted them to have a lasting impact. How many of you know there's a difference in a splash and an impact? Like an impact is something that's lasting. It goes deeper. It's more significant. Like anything can just generate a quick splash, but that impact is is better. I I sometimes think about when I'm uh, on that point of how preachers in my day used to say quite often that it doesn't matter how high you jump when you come to the Lord. It's about how straight you walk when you hit the ground. We've all known people who, who have maybe come to the Lord and there was a lot of splash around that. They had a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm. Maybe they told a lot of people and for every service they were for a while, they were sitting on the front row taking notes. But then all of a sudden, a few months later, you look around and where are they? They're like gone. So it's not about a splash. It's about making an impact. And so the apostle Paul, with that burden on his heart, sat down to write these letters, which would instruct and inspire them to stand firm in the Lord 
and live their life to make an impact. So at the beginning of chapter one, and a couple of weeks ago, we, we covered like how to live a high impact life. And we followed in that teaching some things that were happening in and through those Thessalonians. Like they, they were living with their faith beyond Sunday. It's one thing to come to church on Sunday and be all happy and gung-ho. It's another thing for faith to permeate all of your life. And it affects your home life and your work life. And so that was happening with them. They were, they were loving tough, man. They were, they were enduring in their hope. And so we learned some things about faith, hope, and love and how we can live a high-impact life. Last week, Rusty walked us through the rest of chapter 1. And he helped us to understand like the relationship between impact and influence and how the Holy Spirit can work in our life to help us have an eternal difference in people's lives. Well, today we're going to step into chapter two. And in chapter two, we're going to learn about guarding our impact and our influence, guarding our impact and influence. If we could fast forward to the end of the section that we're going to read today, we would notice that Paul kind of ends this challenge with these words. He says, live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. Like that's what we're all about today. We're, we're, we're tuning into like how can we walk and live our lives in a way that's worthy of God and will guard our impact and our influence. Specifically, We've got to think about that as it relates to how we guard our influence when we're walking through times in life that are difficult. Maybe we're facing opposition and disappointment. Like how we walk through those moments is important. Because if we don't, if we don't guard our influence, we'll go through difficulty in a way which could actually dilute our influence. It could diminish our impact. But in fact, if we can pick up what Paul's going to put down, we can learn that how we go through those difficult times, if we guard our influence and our impact, we, we, we can actually have greater results, greater impact as a result of walking through difficult times in a way that's worthy of God. Let me say it this way. What we believe and what we do in the dark can make the light of Christ burn brighter in our life. Makes me think of a, a family in our faith fellowship, the Carey family, Jared and Rachel, who not only dealt incredibly well with the challenges of having a child with muscular dystrophy. But they also walked with God in such a worthy way as they stepped through the pain of Colton's passing. Carey family has shown us in the darkest of times, the light of Christ can actually burn brighter in your life. When I look at Colton, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded that we can't measure impact by duration, but by depth. Even though he didn't live many years, man, did he have an eternal impact on people's lives. And the Carey family just continues in our city to just let the light of Christ burn in their life, and they're making a difference for eternity 
over and over and over again. What you believe and do in the dark can actually make the light of Christ burn brighter in your life. So let's guard our impact and our influence. Chapter 2, as we step into this, you're going you're gonna to notice that the Apostle Paul seems to be writing this section of the letter answering some objections that had been made about him and his time spent in Thessalonica. It would seem even that the same people that drove him out of town are now conducting a smear campaign, this time in his absence. And they're saying things like, well, you know, he must not have loved you guys or he wouldn't have left you. What kind of shepherd abandons his sheep? Plus, can you trust his message? Like, who ever heard of a Messiah coming back from the dead? So these agitators wanted to weaken, like, Paul's credibility, which would therefore diminish his influence, which in turn would lessen the impact of the church. And so there's no indication that anybody, like, within the believers were believing these lies about Paul, but for the sake of the impact and the influence of his life and the church, Paul felt it was necessary to address some of these accusations. As one Bible teacher writes, as distasteful as it was for Paul to have to defend himself, he answered his detractors directly and concisely for the sake of the truth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, you yourselves know, you know this, that our visit to you was not a failure. Now, because Paul's time in Thessalonica was brief and it was kind of cut short unexpectedly, some people were calling it a failure. That the word failure means useless, worthless, ineffective, now, Paul knew that that charge was not accurate because these spiritual brothers and sisters were like evidence and testimony of how impactful his ministry was in that city. We could go back to chapter 1, read through verses 5 through 8, which tell us, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. Like the power of God changed your life. You received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece. And now the word the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. Paul's time with them wasn't a failure. Like their changed lives was an ongoing witness to the effectiveness of his mission. This point makes me think about a few years ago when the University of Florida made the decision that they, they kind of wanted to reach out to their former coach, Steve Spurrier, about coming back to lead their program. Coach Spurrier built the University of Florida into a powerhouse. Before Coach Spurrier, the Gators were the team you scheduled for homecoming. But, but he led them to win SEC championships and national championships. 
And so more recently, the, the, the Florida Gators have had a difficult time getting back to that level of competitiveness. So somebody got the idea, let's reach out to Steve and see if he's willing to come back. So the athletic director at the time got on the phone and called him and said, Steve, we're thinking about bringing you back as coach for the Florida Gators. Could you send me your resume? (laughs) To which the story goes, Steve Spurrier said to him, go look at the trophy case. That's my resume. In some ways, you can sense the Apostle Paul thinking about this accusation of of being a failure and saying, I didn't fail. All you got to do is look at the changed lives and their lives are evidence. All the proof that I need that our mission wasn't a waste. It was effective. Look at verse two. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. They experienced opposition in another city. But the opposition faced in Philippi was worse than it was in Thessalonica. The description that he gives here of being treated badly and suffering, both of those terms describe being humiliated and abused. If we go back and read in the book of Acts about Paul's time in Philippi, what you learn is that they were publicly stripped of their clothing, stood naked in front of people, were were flogged and beaten and then thrown into prison. You talk about trauma. Paul says, we encountered that kind of opposition, but notice this, yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition, undoubtedly, they were still smarting, you know, physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. And they could have, they could have said, listen, let's just, let's go away. We, we don't have to put up with this. Let's go somewhere else. Let's do something else. They, they could have done that, but instead they, they leaned into the moment and God gave them unexplainable courage so that they could share the same message that got them in trouble in Philippi with these Thessalonians knowing bad things could happen to them. God gave them that much courage. And I want to say to you, listen, one of the things that will guard your influence and guard your impact is when you receive courage from the Lord. Somebody needs to hear this. Because you may be going through a moment where you're facing opposition. You got disappointment. You got heartache and hurt all around you. And wherever God has put you, maybe in your family or your career, your school, your friendship circles, or your health, you might be facing challenges and you're thinking about, man, man, I'm out. I'm out. If this is what you get whenever you serve the Lord, I'm out. Let me encourage you. Like the, the, the Holy Spirit has directed you today to be, be a recipient of, 
of his courage. God's wanting to breathe within you, inspire within you courage. Some of you can feel, even as you're facing difficult things right now, you feel like the Holy Spirit stirring courage up in you. Take it. Take it. Take the courage that God offers to you and guard your influence as you walk through difficult things. Verse 3. So you can see we were, we're not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. Clearly those are accusations which have been hurled at him. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Notice this. Our purpose was to please God, not people. If you got your Bible out in front of what I'd, I'd underscore, whatever way that's phrased, I'd underscore that. Maybe with your eyes, just see that and just underscore that. That's where we're going to land today in a place where we think about, are we God pleasers or are we people pleasers? Now, in this passage, he says, God alone examines the motives of our hearts. The Bible clarifies this. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that as people, we look at things from an outward perspective. We, we judge things by people's countenance and what they say and how they act and how they present themselves. But God is able to see deeper than the outward things. He can see inside. He can see the heart. He can see the thoughts and the motives and the intent. Notice Paul says, man, I've been, my heart's been examined by God. And God has approved me to share this message with you. The term approved was a common term used in Greece during their democratic elections. That word approved described the vetting process that a political candidate had to go through. They would be vetted to see, tested to see, examined to see if they were fit for running for office. If they were, they were approved. I'm biting my tongue hard right now. <laughs> God examines the heart. He approved Paul as his messenger, even though other people disapproved of him. God approved and that was enough. Verse 5. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. The word pretending means to wear a mask. Like we weren't buttering you up, masking our real intent. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or from anyone else. Paul says we're not people pleasers. Neither are we addicted to anyone's affirmation. Now that doesn't mean that they nor we should go out of our way to offend people or try to snub people. But what this means is we, we can't live our life worthy of God, like guarding our influence if we are enslaved by criticism and controlled by other people's opinions. If you want to follow Jesus... If you want to follow his plan for your life, if you want to live a high-impact kind of life, then please know one of the greatest threats to your influence is people-pleasing and affirmation addiction. Verse 7. 
as apostles of Christ, we certainly had the right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you. We were gentle. Some translations say it that way. We were gentle. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but also our own lives. The adversaries were saying about Paul, man, he doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. But to the contrary, the apostle Paul reminded them like during our time with you, we were gentle and we cared for you deeply like that of a mother. Notice this term. We, we shared our lives with you. The word live is the word soul. That's how, that's how close we were. We shared our soul with you. It's, it's, it's not a moment of cowardice. Like We weren't cowards. We didn't run away from you. No, we were courageous like a mother. And we cared for you. Close. We gave you our soul. Think about that. It, it takes me back to a moment when my kids were much younger. We took them to a horse farm. Kids love horses, don't they? So we had this horse farm. And um, my son, who was like five or six at the time, somehow got away from us and got through the fence and went into the arena where the horses were. And there was one particular horse, a huge quarter horse, thick, muscular. It spooked him, and he put his head down and started charging right at my son. My wife younger and spry at the time, <laughs> leaped the fence and ran straight toward that horse, grabbed up my son with one arm, pivoted, and went back to the fence. It was the bossest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I told her, man, I loved you before, but I really love you now. Because a mother's love, like it's caring, but it's courageous, isn't it? Paul says, don't you remember that? Don't you remember that I was that way? Look at verse 9. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you night and day? We toiled to earn a living so that we would not have to be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. Notice that Paul didn't want to be a burden to these brand new believers where they would feel financial responsibility to take care of their needs. Notice he didn't want to be a burden, this is important, as we preach God's good news to you. Paul said, listen, he, he was thinking, there's, there's going to be a time in the future when I can teach you about biblical stewardship and about generosity and supporting missions and ministries, but that'll come later down the line. I don't want to do that while I'm trying to win you to Jesus. We'll talk about that stuff later. But as we've said, later didn't happen. But Paul didn't want them to be burdened by his needs, so he worked hard. He went to tent making and leather crafting paying his way, even though he didn't have to do that, he chose to do it so it wouldn't diminish like his own influence and impact. Verse 10, you yourselves are witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout, honest, 
and faultless toward all of you believers. The word devout is the word for a a determination to walk with God. We were determined to walk with God. The word honest means a willing compliance with, with laws or standards that are reasonably imposed on people. It's like Paul saying, listen, we, we, we obeyed the law. We weren't troublemakers. We weren't rebellious. And then we were faultless or blameless. He's not there saying we were without sin. It means what he would later teach leaders, like live your life above reproach. So he says, you know, it's not easy to say because it sounds like I'm bragging on myself. But, but let me set the record straight. This is necessary. I want you to follow my example. This is how you guard your influence and impact. You walk with God, don't be a troublemaker, and live above reproach. Verse 11. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you, here it is, to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. That's our aiming point. It's to live our lives in a way that God would consider worthy. That's how you keep your influence and your impact online. You just you live a life. You pursue the Lord in a way that God considers worthy. Now look at the reward for that. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. In the month of June, we're going to do a study on the kingdom of God. We're going to break it down with a lot of detail so that we can understand the importance of living our lives like highly invested in the kingdom of God. But for now, just know when you see the word kingdom, that that's a reference to God's rule. It means God's order for things, the way God wants it to be. Now, for those of us who have received Christ, God's kingdom order, his rule, the way that he wants things to be, that his kingdom already begins to take root and get established in our own hearts and lives so that we, we live with a desire to submit to and, and walk in agreement with God's way in our life. We, we want the kingdom, God's rule, his order to like take over in our hearts. So for now, that's the way God's rule works. It works in the lives of believers. But there's coming a day when the king is going to return. And when the king returns, he's going to establish God's way, God's order, God's rule fully in the earth. And we look forward to that day. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Like that day is coming. But for now, we still live in this realm of things and we still face hardship and we still face difficulty. But we do that living our life worthy of the Lord. And the Bible says we do it by having our life hidden in Christ. Like your, your faith life is hidden in Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't like visible right now, but there's coming a time when he shall be. 
And when Christ returns and he is exalted and he is glorified, the Bible says those who have been hidden in Christ will now be revealed for what we are too. And so the the weak in that day will be made strong. Like the, the humbled will be exalted. The ridiculed will be affirmed. All of that is coming. And so now as we walk through, we're letting the kingdom of God root in our hearts and we're walking through difficulty. It's not the way it's going to be when Jesus returns. But right now we're walking with Jesus. We're surrendering to his rule. And as we go through hardship, we're telling ourselves, don't lose you, Jesus. Don't lose you, Jesus. Don't, don't lose your hope. Because there's coming a moment when we will experience the kingdom in its fullness and the fullness of his glory. It's not yet, but it's coming. And so therefore, between now and then, here's our admonition. One theologian puts it this way. Let us live a life worthy of dignity in the present and a life worthy of our destiny in the future. Hallelujah. Walk worthy of God. Guard your influence and your impact. And kind of the one little thing I'm going to say to you, just to take this away today, just chew on this through the week. It's the best way to focus on that. I want to walk worthy of God. And I want to guard my influence is to focus on this. Be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. One of my daughter's high school friends, one of the saddest things I have ever seen. She hired a company that could kind of cheat the algorithms of Facebook and Instagram and add likes to your pictures and posts, making you look more popular than what you are. My daughter told me about that. It just broke my heart. Somebody feels such desperation to be accepted and affirmed and liked that they would pay a company to add likes. I just, and that's an easy one for all of us, I think, to identify and go, yeah, man, you can't be like that. But there's a lot more subtle ways in our own lives where we're struggling with people-pleasing, affirmation addiction. And the Bible says this. The Bible calls it a trap. And there's some of us that we've stepped in the trap. And we're stuck in the trap. Or we're getting awfully close. So can I challenge you to once again reconsider, man, where is Jesus in your life? Are you a God pleaser or a people pleaser? Here's some questions to take with you this week. Some self-examination. What does God think about my life right now? Not what somebody else thinks. What does God think about my life right now? Is the way I'm choosing to live pleasing to him? Are my choices and actions honoring to him? 
is there anything I need to address or change to live in a way that God would consider worthy? God pleaser, people pleaser.